0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 10. Luke, the third book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one on the back table there. Um, the blue ones you can take and keep and there's some other ones you can feel free to borrow. Uh, but Luke chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 20 through 24 this morning. We saw last week, we were looking at this section of verses in Luke chapter 10. We started in verse 17 and we went through verse 24. And all of this has to do with Rejoicing. That's kind of the key word in the passage, is rejoicing. And we asked, What, what do you rejoice in? What gets you excited? What, what brings joy to your heart and to your life? And we said that, that what we rejoice in often reveals something about who we are. So if you rejoice in U of L, it might reveal something about who you are. If you rejoice in a basketball game, it reveals something about your history or your core beliefs. There's a man named Henry Skugel. He wrote this book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And here's a quote from that book. It says, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Let me read that again. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. So in other words, what we delight in, what we rejoice over, reveals the true value of of who we are. So if my greatest joys are in the pain and failure of others, then that reveals something about me. I saw a YouTube video, and if you laughed at this YouTube video, I'm not condemning you, but it was of this father videotaping children coming out of a school and slipping on ice <laughs> and just cracking up. And You guys are laughing. Now I'm going to make fun. No. <laughs> and I thought, it, it's funny, and yet it's terrible. I mean, they were going to get hurt. Rejoicing that it reveals something about, about who we are. Um, If what you get most excited about is a basketball game this weekend, now most excited, I'm not saying you can't get excited, but if that's what you get most excited about, and if 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 that team loses and you get most depressed, it reveals something about who you are, right? And what if God is our greatest pleasure? If the worth and excellency of the soul is measured by the object of our love, if God is our greatest love, our greatest desire, what we rejoice in most, it's going to reveal something amazing about Who we are and what God has made us. When Henry Schugel wrote those, he intended it to be applied to us. And I think that's a good application. There's an author and pastor named John Piper who began to meditate, though, on how that phrase, the worth and excellency of the soul, is to be measured by the objects of love, how that might be applied to God. What does God rejoice in? What does God get most excited about? What what brings God joy? Because that's going to reveal something about who God is is, the overflow of, 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 of who God is is, is, is found in what he rejoices in. And so um, John Piper meditated on that, and he wrote this book called The Pleasures of God, Meditations on God's Delight in Being God. And that book, it, it, he uses this passage as one of the bases for, the, for one of the chapters, because it talks about something that Jesus rejoices in, and what Jesus rejoices in reveals something about who Jesus is at his core. So we're going to think this morning about what Jesus delights in, what Jesus rejoices in, and then we're going to ask if we rejoice in the same thing, and why we should rejoice in the same thing. So let me warn you beforehand, you ready? We're going to think hard this morning. This is not going to be easy, so I want you to zero in. We're going to meditate Deeply on this passage. When I say meditate, meditate sometimes has the idea of thinking about nothing. Um, In in Eastern religions, we're going to meditate on God's word. So we're going to think about something and we're going to think deeply about it. We're going to mull over it um, and try to really get down deep into what this says. So we're going to ask a lot of questions of this passage. And we're going to drill down and we're going to try to find the answer to two main questions. The two main questions being, what does Jesus rejoice in? And the second one, why should I rejoice in that? So what is Jesus rejoicing, and why should I also rejoice in that? But we're also going to ask a lot of other questions to get to those answers. So let me read from Luke chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 17, and we're going to go through verse 24. We're going to focus on verses 21 through 24. Luke 10, beginning in verse 17, says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it there's a lot in here we got to think hard this morning so the the first question I want to ask is is when does Jesus rejoice? Jesus rejoices, and he rejoices within a context of something. So, when it, what's the occasion here? This this joy in Jesus is spilling over in the midst of the seventy-two. Remember these disciples that went out to proclaim the the peace and the nearness of the kingdom. They go out and proclaim, and then they return, and it's right after that that Jesus rejoices that Satan had yeah. had been defeated in many ways, and he's calling these disciples to rejoice primarily not in in the works that they had done, but but to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. So we said last week that the the foundation of our rejoicing should be in what Jesus has done through salvation, not not in what he has done through us in ministry. Our greatest joy should be in the fact that God knows our names, not that God has shown outward power through us. And it's in this environment of seeing the message of the nearness of the kingdom spreading and, and, and calling our, our, us to have, find our greatest joy and the peace that God brings, that it's out of that that Jesus then rejoices. It's interesting to note that all three persons of the Trinity are a part of this rejoicing. It says in verse 21, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So it, it seems that the Holy Spirit, in a sense, prompts Jesus to rejoice in this moment. The Holy Spirit is is present in this, not only that, but when Jesus cries out, he says, "I thank you, Father." So he's calling out to God. He he prays and uh, to, so so the Holy Spirit is there, and he calls out to to the Father. And that, that's kind of the second question: Who is Jesus thanking? Who does Jesus thank? He says, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth." So two, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Father reminds us of of Jesus that Jesus is not just some human being. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God's son. And not only that, but there's this intimacy, there's this depth of relationship between the Father and the Son. So we're going to think about this more in a little bit when we look at verse 22, but but for now just just think about that that as Jesus calls out to God as Father, it reveals this idea of relationship, that that there's an opportunity for relationship with God. This, the idea of a father is it, supposed to bring up the idea of closeness in relationship and, 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 and love between one another. In our world, many of us probably have not felt that love from a father, and so this might be difficult. But, but Jesus and God the Father are the perfect representation of what that relationship should look like. There is love, there is, there is care, there is intimacy, there is desire for them to know one another well. And that's what is represented when Jesus says, I thank you, Father. But Jesus also thanks who? He says, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He is the He is the sovereign one. He is the one who controls everything. As we read in Romans eleven to start, it tells us that He is the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. So He is He is the source. He is the cause, and He is the goal of everything in the world. Therefore." Paul says, to him belongs all glory for all eternity because of who he is. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. Our God is the one true and living God. There is no other God. He's the Lord of all. He's the, he's the king of the universe. Everything else is underneath his control. and Everyone must bow to him as the supreme creator, sustainer, and ruler of the world. So think about these two revelations of God. He's, he's the father which signals this, this intimacy, this opportunity for relationship to know him, but yet he is also the Lord of heaven and earth. He is so different from us. He is so exalted. He controls all things. He is over all things. He, he's over this divine act that we're going to talk about of hiding and revealing. Those, those are two key words in this passage, hiding and revealing. So we should ask the question, what is meant? By hiding and revealing. There are things that are hidden, and there are things that are revealed. Of course, hiding and revealing, those aren't hard words to understand, right? You know what? Some, when something's hidden and when something is revealed? To hide something is to do your best to keep something from being known. It's probably best to think about this as a secret. A secret that you have. Not a secret about someone else, but a secret about, about you. Something about you that you don't want anyone else to know. And, and no one else knows. No one knows this about you, and and, and you are hiding that. You you don't want to tell anyone what that is. So the idea here, it says that God has hidden, that I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. God has a secret. God has something that he's hiding. He's not telling everyone what it is. There's There's a secret. But he's also revealing He's not hiding the secret from everyone. He's revealing it to some. He allows some to know the truth. He's bringing it to light. He's making it fully known. So think about that secret that you were just thinking that thing about you that no one else knows. That secret that you have. But what if you revealed that to someone? Maybe there, maybe there are just a few people that know that, that thing whatever it might be. But you, you have the power to reveal that. Only you know that secret and only you can reveal what it is. And you determine who you're going to reveal it to or who you're not going to reveal it to. It's that's yours. It's your secret. Of course, everyone right now is thinking, I wonder what the person next to me's secret is. I wonder what they're thinking about. But don't think about that. Don't think about that because there's, there's something more important. There's a better secret to know. You know what the secret we want to know is? What is God hiding? What's what's God's secret? What's what's the thing? I want to know what that is. So don't care about your neighbor's embarrassing moment from the past, where that their favorite band is One Direction and they're not telling anyone, you know, things like that. Don't think about that. We want to think what is God what is God hiding? I want to know what that is, don't you? If God has a secret, I'd like to know what it is. Verse twenty one tells us the answer. I thank you, Father Lord and heaven Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden These things. There's the answer. These things. And then later it says, and revealed them. So those are the two words how we know what it is. These things and them. That doesn't really answer the question, though, does it? These things. That doesn't satisfy us. What are these things? Things is such an undescriptive word. Do you remember in English, you're never supposed to use the word thing if you can come up with something else? Because thing is not Descriptive there's this thing well what does that mean what is the thing so what are these things remember thinking hard here I thank you Father Lord and heaven that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children what are these things what are what's the them referring to remember within the context it could refer to the to the nearness of the kingdom of God I think it's best to look, though, at verse 22. I think that verse is going to give us an idea of what these things are. Begins, all things. What does that mean? It means all things. All things have been handed over to me. Jesus is talking. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. So the Father gives Jesus all things. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. Stop right there. So there's there's some sort of depth of knowledge about the Son that only the Father has. God the Father knows something about the Son that, that no one else knows. And, and on the flip side too, the um, the Son knows things about the Father that no one else knows. That there's just one person that knows those things, and it's the Son. So so there's this there again this this relationship. Of course, everyone knows God in some way, right? Romans 1, we all see creation. We recognize who God is, but, but there's something deeper going on here. There's a depth of knowledge about God that only the Son knows, and there's a depth of knowledge about the Son that only the Father knows. Think, think about that. That there are depths in the character of God that only Jesus knows about. There are things about Jesus that only the, the Father knows. You might think about your own relationship maybe with your kids or with your parents. There's, there's a relationship there. My kids know things about me that no one else does. I know things about my kids that no one else does. That There's a depth of relationship. There's something about God's relationship with the Father that, that reveals that. There's something deep going on here. But here's what's even more amazing. Is think about this. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. Who the Father is except the Son. So here's the secret. There's only two people that know it. The Father knows about the Son and the Son knows about the Father. But then there's another group that's added in. Right? Or who the Father is except the Son, and and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So this depth of knowledge that the Son has about the Father, it's it's a secret that he has. Guess what? He can tell it. He can tell it to whoever he wants to. And he tells it to people. He he wants people to know. This deep knowledge of who God is. So what is the these things? You've hidden these things. These things is a revelation of the true identity of God. That's what Jesus knows, and that's what he wants to reveal to us. Not just the Father, but, but the Son too. We can get in on this knowledge. We can get in on the depths of who God is, because Jesus can choose to reveal that to us. Now it says that he's going to reveal, the Son can reveal about the Father, but we know from John 14 that whoever has seen the Son has seen the Father. And so there's this relationship, we know the Father, we know the Son. If we know the Son, we know the Father. There's just this this knowledge about who God is in the mystery of who he is that, that we can come to know if Jesus says, I'm going to reveal that to you. I'm going to tell you the secret. So who do the Father and the Son choose to reveal themselves to? Who gets in on the secret? Your secret. Think about your secret. Who are you going to tell? I mean, it's got to be someone special, right? I mean, I'm, just, I'm not just going to tell anyone my secret. I might not tell anyone my secret. If I do tell someone my secret, they're going to. It's going to be someone unique. So who did they let in on the secret of their true identity? On the flip side, who did the Father and the Son hide themselves from? That's in here. You have hidden these things. God is hiding. He's not going to tell everyone. There are some that won't know the secret of who he is. So, who's he going to tell? The the answer is, is simple. It's clear. Verse 21, isn't it? I thank you, Father, Lord on heaven earth, that you've hidden these things from who? The wise and understanding. And you revealed them to who? Little children. So who gets to know the secret? Little children. Who doesn't get to know the secret? The wise and the understanding. Now that doesn't totally make sense either, so we've got to ask another question. Who are the wise and the understanding, and who are the little children? Even infants is how it could be treated. Who Who are these two groups of people? Who get to know the secret? Hopefully it's obvious that Jesus isn't saying that if you have a bachelor's degree, you can't know him. Or at only little kids, you have to be below a certain age, and then you're allowed to know who Jesus. That's not what he's saying, is he? But he's speaking about two different kinds of adults. <laughs> of course, for those of you that are kids here, I think you should know this. Check this out. Jesus wants all the adults here to be more like you. Isn't that interesting? Jesus wants us to be like little children, and little children who are who are grow up to know who Jesus is. That's a, such a unique. Blessing. Jesus wants all of us older people to be more like the kids that are here. What is it about children that Jesus says should be a part of us, and what is it about the wise and the understanding that that should not be a part of us that actually keeps us from coming to know who God truly is? I think it's two things. I think the thing that He's guarding us from is pride, and then the thing that He wants in us is humility. So the wise and the understanding—it's not that they're smart; it's that they're pride. Pride—they're full of pride. And and the children, it's not that they're little children, it's that they're humble. Th- think about children. Think, think about a little infant. Think about how helpless a baby is. H- human children are, are uniquely helpless when you think about other animals. I mean, a horse stands within like five minutes of being born. It takes like, you know, at least nine months before a child can even wobble. You know, it's amazing how dependent we are from the very beginning. If a baby is left alone in the world, that baby will not survive. They are totally, 100% dependent upon others to provide them with food and warmth and shelter. Little babies have no pride, do they? I heard about uh, Joshua's little baby crying last night. Sarah Elizabeth said it was a rough night. Babies don't have pride that says... Ah, I'll let them sleep. I, I I'll take care of this on my own. They say, I'm hungry or I'm upset and I'm going to scream because I need help. That's how babies are. But think about someone who's wise. I'm not talking just book smarts, but they they just think that they're smart. Maybe it's street smarts. They think they got it all figured out. There's a pride there, isn't there? They they know that they they can the thing that they can do and and they avoid looking for help from others. Isn't that hard to ask for help? Nobody likes. Asking for help. That's we're hardwired to say, I'll figure this out on my own. That's the wise and the understanding, the self-sufficient. So Jesus isn't saying that he has a preference towards little children and he's against the smart and the wise. Jesus is not a respecter of persons in in any ways. Rather he's saying in a different way what he says in Matthew eighteen three. This is what Jesus says in Matthew eighteen three. Unless you are converted and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to get in on the secret, you know what you gotta do? You gotta become like a little child. You gotta become like a baby. You must come to Jesus in humility. The way to know who he is is to come in humility. Who is he going to reveal himself to? To the humble. To the little children, to the ones that say, I'm dependent. I, I got I have nothing, Jesus. It, without you I have nothing. I have no Hope, it's only those who come on their knees that can get to Jesus. Can I use another Indiana Jones illustration? I did that last week. I, I, I don't know how you get two in a row, Indiana Jones, but in Indiana Jones and in the Last Crusade, they're, they're looking to get to the Holy Grail, and there's these three tests that they have to pass, and he has clues about how to get through each test, and the first one, the clue is only... The penitent man will pass. Do you remember this? And he's repeating it over and over in his head. Only the penitent man will pass. Only the penitent man will pass. What does that mean? He doesn't know how to get through. And finally, as he's walking in, it hits him. The penitent man kneels before God. And at that moment, he kneels and the blade comes and you know misses his head, and he rolls over and he's and he's saved. But it's amazing. Only the penitent man will pass. And isn't that true about coming to God. It's only the penitent. It's only the one who's willing to kneel that can get to Jesus. Everyone comes in the same way. Everyone comes in the same way. We all come kneeling before Jesus, and no one comes standing up, bringing things, saying, look, Jesus, look at all that I have. This is why you should accept me. It's only the penitent, only those that have come in humility like little children. Let me read to you a full description. This is from that book that I mentioned, The Pleasures of God. This is what um, John Piper says about infants. The infants are those who know and feel themselves helpless and unworthy of any good from God. You feel that? They have renounced all pride and boasting. They do not feel resourceful in themselves to know God or to save themselves from judgment. They admit that without special divine revelation, they will not know the most important reality and will not know how to live according to the truth. They admit humbly that if they ever know God for who he really is, it will be owing to the same wonderful work of divine grace that Jesus spoke over Peter's confession. Remember this? Matthew sixteen seventeen. Flesh and blood, Peter, did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How did Peter know? Because God told him. The infants on this side of the cross know that they are utterly dependent on the death of Christ to open the door to wisdom. Without his atoning, substitutionary death, all access to God and his wisdom would be cut off. The infants admit with longing and hope and confidence that Christ is the way to wisdom and the sum of all wisdom. These are the spiritual ones that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 2.15, whom the Spirit of God has humbled so that they can see the death of Christ as the glorious wisdom of God. To such ones the Father reveals the Son, and the Son reveals the Father. They are the ones who receive the word of the cross, because it is not foolishness to them. This is what he says about the wise and intelligent. The wise and the intelligent, on the other hand, are offended by the word of the cross. To them it is foolishness, because the cross makes clear the helplessness and unworthiness Of all human beings, the cross exalts God's grace and undermines all boasting except in the Lord. But pride is the deep pleasure of the wise and intelligent. Therefore, they resist anything that contradicts their sense of self-sufficiency and resourcefulness. They want to take credit for and be praised for their intellectual accomplishments. The wise and the understanding, they don't want to come to the cross. Because if they come to the cross, they have to come on their knees and they have to admit that they can't do anything. And they say, I'm too smart for that. The cross is foolishness. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me because I can come to God on my own terms. First Corinthians 1 is the key parallel passage here. Feel free to turn there if you want or I'll just read it. First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is what Paul says. For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly that we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Isn't that good? The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then I love this part. This is one of my favorite parts in all of Scripture. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. <laughs> it says, Look around. <laughs> Look around the church. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. He says, look around not many Tim Tebow's. There's a few. We exalt the Christians that, that are revered in the world. But in actuality, you know what we're mostly made, of, up, made up of? Those that aren't wise. Those that aren't understanding. And even those that are wise and understanding must become children to get in. There must be humility. The end of this, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Because of him you are in Christ who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Here's the answer to the to the ultimate question, then. Why does all of this fill Jesus with joy? Why does Jesus rejoice at this? Because that's that's the main question, remember? So we're going on, we've asked, we kind of thought about a lot of different things. Now we're coming back to the main question. Because it says, in that same hour he rejoiced. Jesus is excited. What's he excited about? He's excited. That God, the Father, the Lord of the heavens and the earth, has decided to hide these things from the wise and the understanding and to reveal them to little children. Why does that get Jesus excited? Why does Jesus rejoice at that? First off, let me say this. Jesus is not rejoicing at our foolishness. Jesus is not, is not saying, I'm excited that you are weak. But his joy is in this this mysterious plan, this glorious plan of salvation where God chooses to hide himself from the prideful and the self-sufficient and chooses to reveal himself to those who are humble and see that they are completely dependent upon God for salvation. Jesus is rejoicing in the Father's gracious will. Jesus isn't gloating over us. If we're tempted to get upset about the thought that God chooses some for salvation, and blinds others, then we're reminded of of this. It's grace for anyone to see. Look what he says. This is, no one knows, he says, wise, I'm sorry, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It's grace that anyone sees. We have the question wrong. We say, why does God choose some and not the others? others. The question is, why does God choose anyone? Why can anyone's eyes be open to see the truth of this? It's a miracle that any of us see and hear and understand the gospel. It's a miracle of grace. And the reason that Jesus exalts in it is because who looks great? God does. Jesus looks great. No one else. You don't look great. And I don't look great. What did, what did Paul say? God has chosen the foolish things of the world. He's chosen us because we are fools. That's why you are a child of God. Because you have come and said, I'm a little child. Jesus, I have nothing. I am totally dependent upon you. And so Jesus rejoices. Why? Because Jesus' greatest desire is for his own glory and for the glory of the Father. Now, that might sound prideful, but think about this. Go back to that quote. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. And if God is the greatest being in all the world, then he must rejoice in what is greatest because that's going to reflect on who he is. So if God rejoices in anything else besides himself, then it's idolatry. And it decreases the value of who he is. God has to rejoice most fully in who he is because he is the greatest of anything in the world. So he rejoices in himself. And that is right. It's good for him to do that. And so he rejoices then in anything that makes him look great. And so he rejoices in salvation this way in the salvation that reveals itself to infants and to babes who are helpless. Because when he reveals himself to helpless people, he looks great. He looks majestic. He looks like the God that he is, the Lord of heaven and earth, but also the Father who loves and sends his Son. You know, the idea of choosing, I think, is hard because we... We don't understand this idea of choosing based on nothing. <laughs> when you think about choosing, you think it's based on something. When you picked your, your picks for your bracket, you said, I picked this team because I think they're going to win and because I like them. And many of you probably have U of L in the center of your bracket. Why? Because you like them. Because, and you think that they're good. Maybe you watch The Voice on TV. Why do they hit the red button? Because the person can sing. Man, I want them on my team. And right across the bottom of their little chair, what's it say? I want you. <laughs> why? Because they're a good singer. You know why Jesus chooses us? Not because we're good singers. I know that's why he didn't choose me. He didn't choose me because I'm a good singer. He didn't, he didn't choose me um, uh, because I, I'm athletic like the people that are playing the basketball game. He didn't choose me for ed. You know why he chose me? because I have nothing, <laughs> because I'm a fool, because I can't offer anything, and, and because in his grace and sovereignty he's opened my eyes to see that. He said, Andy, you're a little child. You've got to come humbly. you gotta you got to kneel before me. That's the only way to come. And so here's the reality. If you, if you ask this question, what if God didn't choose me? Well, what do you need to do? Choose you for what? Choose you to have this secret knowledge. Well, who's he going to reveal it to? Little children. And who are little children? They're the humble. You want to know the secret? You can get in on the secret. Humble yourself. The key is humility. The key is to say, God, I have nothing. And when we do that, guess what? Jesus reveals who he is. He helps us to see what the truth of the gospel is. So if that's your question, if you say, what if I'm not chosen? Well, humble yourself. And guess what? You are! (laughs) And God will reveal the truth of who he is to you, and he alone will get the glory. That's why it fills Jesus with joy. Now, why should it fill me with joy? Why should I care that God is exalted? It's because if God is supremely glorified in the plan of salvation, then I will know the greatest possible joy in the world because of that. If we're to add something to God, if we, if, to, to God's salvation, if we add our wisdom or our understanding, then we begin to share glory with God. But if we come as infants, then God receives all the glory. And, and Jesus is blessed, is, is lifted up and seen as great. Isn't that what he turns to the disciples and says? He says to them privately, Blessed <laughs> are the eyes that see what you see. Because I tell you, prophets, kings, kings, wanted to see this and didn't see it. And they wanted to hear this and they didn't hear it. But you have, and by faith we have. We are in this group. We see it. We, we, you've you come to know this. You you are blessed that, that Jesus has revealed himself to you. And God is glorified. And, and what happens is when we come as little children, our desire intersects with God's desire for his own glory, and we say, you know what, that's, that's what I want. I want God to be lifted up. I want God to be seen as great. So I will be a little child. I will admit that I have nothing to offer, because my great desire is to see God exalted. When we have trouble with that, and we say, well, I kind of want something to do with my salvation. I'd like to add a little work here and there. Or maybe I'd like to think that God chose me because I'm something special. That's pride creeping in, and we need to push that down and say, no, you know what, I I think I'm an infant. I think I'm a little child that's completely dependent. And therefore, God is the only one that is glorified in our salvation. The hard thing about that is nobody wants to be called a child, including children. Children don't want to be called childish. They want to be big. They want to be able to do big things. And none of us wants to be called a child. But when we humble ourselves then Jesus exalts us. He says here, you are blessed. You are blessed beyond anyone. You're blessed beyond Abraham. You're blessed beyond Moses. You're you're blessed beyond all these men of old, the prophets of old that wanted to see this, and now you see it, if you are willing to humble yourself and come to Jesus. Because Jesus then becomes the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He does it all. He does every single part of salvation. He initiates it. <laughs> he, he He initiates it, and then he comes and he accomplishes it. He, he rescues us. That old illustration that you're drowning and someone throws you a life preserver and what you need to do is grab onto it is dead wrong. What we are is dead on the bottom of the water. And we need Jesus, the lifeguard, to dive down, pull us up to the top, and perform CPR and put life into our dead Bodies, We can do nothing. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And therefore, if Jesus rescues us, he comes and he comes when? When we were without strength. When we were without strength at the perfect time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus does what none of us could ever do on our own. He's raised from the dead. He ascends to the Father. He conquers sin and death for us. He doesn't ask Anything from us. He doesn't want anything from you. He wants you to come as a child. He wants you to humble yourself and say, Jesus, I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing. You and I got Jesus. I got a whole bunch of sin. I got a whole bunch of rebellion. I got a whole bunch of pride in me that thinks I can get to you on my own. And so what he wants us to do is he wants us to come and repent of that. Jesus wants you to repent of thinking that you can earn your way to him. Jesus wants you to repent of the ways that we have rebelled against the Lord of heaven. He says, turn from that. Humble yourself. Turn and then put your faith in me alone. Don't say, I'm going to climb the ladder, Jesus. You say, Jesus has done it all for me. He has come. He lived the life I could not live. He never failed. And then he died. And he didn't die because he did anything wrong. He, did because I, he died because I did everything wrong. Because I sinned and I failed. And Jesus takes the penalty for our sin upon himself. And all he asks is you would, that we would repent and believe that we would humble ourselves like little children and say, God, we want you alone to get the glory in our salvation. We have done nothing but you have done it all. All praise to God alone. Because this is his gracious will. What grace, what amazing grace that God has shown us Pray that as we think hard, that it would come from our brains and then sink down deep into our hearts and we would see the glory of who God is. Why does Jesus rejoice in this? Because in this way, God is lifted up and God is seen as great. And if we are willing to come in that same way, then we will rejoice in it as well. Why? Because the great desire of our soul becomes the glory of God, that God will be seen as great because he is. We pray for us. Lord, in the midst of all this, I just confess that I don't understand it all, and none of us do. Lord, what a mystery salvation is, but it's a wonderful mystery. And so, Jesus, I say on behalf of those of us that have come in humility, thank you. God, we have nothing. Yet you have adopted us. When we were dead, when we were children, when we were infants, and we couldn't do anything. You rescued us, Lord. And so you receive all the praise and the glory and the honor. Lord, from you and through you and to you are all, all things. And so for all eternity, may you be lifted up and seen as great. Lord, I pray for those that have come into this place with pride or self-sufficiency and they think, I can do it, I can get to God, I can make God happy, Lord, that you would lovingly crush that and that you would make them little children who must come on their knees to you. Lord God, that is your gracious will. It is your good will to humble us and let us see our need of you. Lord, please be exalted, be lifted up in this moment, in this service, Lord, but in our lives as well, that we would continue to push down the pride and we would lift Jesus up to where he needs to be. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.